Amen. So that's Christmas coming up. Um, let me ask this question by show of hands. Who here is already registered, signed up for one of our Christmas Eve services? All right. So a number of you, uh, those of you who are not, I'm going to give you a little inside tip here. All right. We mentioned that we have four services here on campus, 1 p.m., 3 p.m., 5 p.m., 7 p.m. I need you to know that the 3 p.m. service is already sold out. You cannot come to that. You cannot sign up uh, because we're limiting capacity inside. The 5 p.m. service out here is already sold out. So the two services left are the 1 p.m. and the 7 7 p.m. So if you want to worship inside with us, get your spot for the 1 p.m. I would do it tonight or tomorrow or the next day because I think it'll sell out. And then if you want to join us at 7 p.m., I think there should be some room for that coming through this weekend. So that is Christmas Eve. Uh, and that is also going to be something that impacts us as a ministry here on Thursday nights going forward. Uh, and I'll explain in a moment what I mean by that. What you'll notice if you watch the video is a little bit of a different shift for us, a little bit of a new thing when it comes to our programming and how we gather as a church. Uh, and so because of that, I want to take a few minutes here before we jump into the text of the sermon tonight um, to talk to you, give you a little update about things here at Calvary, where we stand, what we're doing, and why we're approaching Christmas Eve and things after Christmas Eve the way we are as a church. And so I want to talk through those things. Uh, I want to give you five key principles that have guided Calvary through our decision-making process. These are not new things. These aren't things we came up with in the last couple of weeks. These are things that have been true for us since the beginning of the pandemic, and we continue to play out these biblical principles over and over and over again. Here's the first one. We remain committed to honoring the governing authorities as commanded in the Bible. So right from the beginning, we have said that we are a church, that we are going to honor the governing authorities, that this is not optional for the Christian. It's not honor and submit to and obey the governing authorities. If you like them, if you voted for them, if you agree with them, if you think they're doing the right thing, it's do it. Uh, a lot of times people have presented throughout this pandemic for Christians that you need to obey the government or God and you have to pick one. Or you obey Caesar or you obey Christ. But here's the mistake there. Here's why this is a false dichotomy. Because in the Bible, 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 specifically, sometimes obeying God means obeying the government. Obeying Christ means obeying Caesar. This is what's taught in the Bible. And listen, I haven't always liked that this year. There have been times I have not liked these texts in the Bible, but we have had to submit to them because being a Christian who says Jesus is Lord means I'll submit to Jesus as Lord even when it's inconvenient and either when I, even when I'd rather not. So I want to be clear. We as a church are remaining committed to submitting to and obeying governing authorities. We have not reached this point where we're just kind of tired of this or we're over it or our patience has run up, so we're going to change our approach. We believe this is still an active call on our life for our church. And that's been true since the beginning. But one of the things you'll notice is that we are making the decision to begin hosting indoor services. We're talking about Christmas Eve. I'm going to talk in just a moment about what that means for our ministry here. But we have made the decision to move inside. And so you might ask the question, okay, if you're committed to submitting to governing authorities, and what I hear in the news, Brian, is church is supposed to be outside. What's going on here? How, how do those two statements line up? And I want to try to give you the answer here. Um, number two, we understand that recent court rulings and government language acknowledge our freedom, and give us some latitude on how we, can, how we can gather. Here's what I mean by this. If you think about how to obey 1 Timothy 2, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter 2, and Romans chapter 13, what you'll quickly, quickly see is that's always done in the context, right? And so in the context we're talking about, there are actually three layers of government that all of us are interfacing with on a constant, maybe even daily basis. There's local government, there's state government, and then there's a federal national government. 
And then here's what you remember from civics class, right? Within each of those, there is an executive branch, there is a legislative branch, and there is a judicial branch. And so what we've seen for the last nine months is that there's not been room, there's not been latitude, and there's not been acknowledgement from any of those branches of government, local, state, or national, judicial, executive, or legislative, that gives us the freedom to be able to move forward, that acknowledges what we would like to do, which is be able to go inside and not be freezing out here on Thursday nights. We have not seen that opportunity until recently. If you track with the news and if you track with what's been going on, there have been a number of courses, uh, uh, cases stemming from some federal court decisions over the last few weeks, and those have been piling up that we believe those federal courts are signaling to states and localities and giving guidance to states and localities on their regulations and their laws that even in the midst of the pandemic, they need to acknowledge some freedom and latitude for churches. So this is our interpretation of these court cases that have come down. I want you to understand this isn't like we heard something on the news and kind of thought maybe we'd do this. We've been studying legal documents. And here's my invitation to you. If you would like to talk to me about those legal cases, those court cases specifically. I have a list of them on my phone and I would love to talk to you after the service. If you don't know this, this is general, just true for any sermon, any service. I go stand right back there at the end of the service. And if you wanna talk about the legal issues, the kind of complicated web of how Calvary came to this decision, I'm gonna stand back there tonight and I welcome any of you to come talk to me. I would be happy to walk you through why we believe, why we have come to interpret these cases to give us what we're calling some latitude. So you'll notice that careful choice of words. It's some latitude. It's not that we get to go back to business as usual. I would love to go back to business as usual, but I don't feel good on the health side there and I don't feel good on the legal side there. And so what we're gonna go back to is not business as usual, but it's the latitude we have to make decisions for our congregation on how best we can gather. And here's the decision for Calvary going forward. There's three things you're gonna hear from us over and over and over again. Number one is we're gonna do online services. There's some folks, you heard Pastor Dick Thompson up here earlier talking about how there's some folks who haven't left their home since March. We're gonna to continue to offer online services. We're gonna to continue to do outdoor services. So there's gonna be options for folks who wanna worship outdoors. They wanna be on campus. They're just not ready to go in yet. We're gonna do outdoor services and we're gonna do indoor services for those who feel comfortable, for those who do feel ready. So that's our approach. That's what we see in the judicial system right now. That's what some of these court rulings have handed down. Again, happy to talk to you about the specifics if you wanna meet with me after. Um, would be love, love, love to have that conversation. Here's the third thing. When I say some latitude and we're not going back to business as usual. The third thing is this, I'll read this. It's that we are committed to the health and safety of our congregation and our community. And will therefore practice social distancing, wearing masks, staying home if sick, and limited capacity when indoors. So, so we have enforced this out here. We have talked about this. We've spread out. We're out here in the cold. We ask you to wear masks unless it's during the sermon time. We have asked you to put health measures in place. I need you to understand those are going to continue. So when we go inside for Christmas Eve and when this ministry in the future goes inside and we're gathered in the worship center, we're going to ask you to wear masks. We're going to socially distance. We have already begun the process of roping off and sealing off certain seats so that we can distance off in the worship center. If you are sick or you've been exposed to someone who's sick, we're going to ask you to stay home. And then here's really the key for something like Christmas Eve um, is that we are going to do limited capacity in our worship center. So our worship center seats over 3,000 people. For right now, we're going to be about 20% capacity, not allowing it to get over that amount so we can distance people out and protect health. I want to be really clear with everyone here. No one mistake us here. 
we are not moving inside because we think the pandemic's over. We're not moving inside because we don't think the pandemic's serious. We're not moving inside because we're just kind of over it and we don't really care about health anymore. We are going to continue to put health measures in place just like other places you might go, businesses you might go to that put health measures in place. We are going to be doing that here as a church. We are committed to the health of our congregation and we're committed to giving you choices to worship online, outside, and inside. That's number three. Number four is this. We will continue to assess and make changes based on the evolving nature of the pandemic. So that means that we might dial things forward at some point, allow a little more capacity inside. At some point, if it's the right move, we may require or, or stop requiring and just recommending masks if that's the right move legally and right move health-wise. We might dial things back at some point. We might go in for a few weeks and then realize that that was the wrong move or somehow we have created a problem here and we might dial that back a little bit. So I want you to understand that our moves, our decisions here are never final. We're always trying to make the best decision. And then here's the final point. And to me, this is the most important of all five points I've made tonight. That we will continue to keep the focus of our church on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I want to be abundantly clear with you. Um, There is going to come a time not so long from now where this ministry on Thursday nights will move inside our worship center. And I want you to understand that when we go inside our worship center, it is not our opportunity for a political statement. It is not a protest when we go in there, and it is not a proclamation of your rights as an American. When we gather for worship here at this church, we gather for one reason and one reason only, hear me on this, it is to proclaim the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. That's it. That's what we're about. And if you want to come here and make this about politics or make this about some protest or make this about sticking it to the government, this is not your place to do that, okay? I want to be clear with you. This is about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. It will always be about Jesus. We are here to become disciples who live in love like him. That's what we're about here. So you're going to see some changes. You're going to see us moving forward on that. But it is Jesus all the time, and it is all the time Jesus here at this church. And so we're going to invite you into that um, for Christmas Eve. So I mentioned 1 p.m. still has spots. You can attend out here at 7 p.m. Out here at 7 p.m., it'll be our young adults band. I'll be preaching actually all four services this year. So I invite you to join us for Christmas Eve. Um, Let's talk about Thursday nights real quick. We are going to be moving forward. I'm going to give you a vague timeline, okay? I'm being intentionally vague right now. Mid-January, okay? Mid-January is our plan at this point that we would start to migrate inside for young adults ministry. Uh, Again, on on kind of our bigger nights here, we have just over 300 people, a 3,000-seat auditorium. That's about 10% of that. We feel very comfortable with our capacity uh, to distance in there. Uh, We're doing little tweaks to make sure it's even a little more healthy. We're turning on different air handlers, increasing air capacity and airflow in there. We're moving around things to make sure it is a healthy, safe, and compelling experience for everyone there. So that's the plan going forward. When we can give you specific dates, um, we will tell you right away through our social media and through this platform, but mid-January. So here's what you get to know. We have a few more nights out here where it's going to be cold and it's going to be dark, uh, but we are moving forward as a ministry, believing we have the opportunity to gather in different ways. And you as an individual and you as a family unit and you as a household get to decide how that works best for you and your family. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm going to pray uh, and then we're going to move forward. And then I I just want to repeat my invitation. If you're going, okay, I'm a little skeptical. I want to see these court decisions. I want to see something like that. I will stand right at the back at the end and I'm just all, um, all ears for your questions. And and I want to give you all the information we have uh, so that you can understand how we got there. But with that said, let me pray uh, and then we'll move forward. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. 
And thanks for the opportunity we have a church, as a church, to step into what looks like a new phase here. An opportunity to gather online, outside, inside, um, to be able to give people opportunities to come and worship Jesus. Help us to continue to be a church that keeps our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Help us keep people safe as we go. God, we pray against distraction. We pray against illness. We pray against anyone um, coming into this place and, and experiencing harm. God, help us to be a church that loves our people, loves our community, and God, help us to grow to be more like Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said. Amen. Right on. If you have a Bible with you, grab that right now. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And I'm going to try to keep it real simple tonight. I know it is cold. I know it is dark. And I know I've spent a while talking already. But I want to do something very simple tonight. And that's this. This is our final young adult service before Christmas. Uh, and I simply want to stand up here tonight and teach through Luke 2 and give you three reasons for hope this Christmas. Three reasons for peace this Christmas. I, I want to give you three things you can cling on to this Christmas as we go forward um, that I know will encourage and bless your heart this evening. And so again, Luke chapter two, we're going to start in verse one. If you grew up in church or even if you didn't and just attended Christmas services, this should be a familiar story to you. Luke chapter two, verse one, it says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So the Christmas story, if you've forgotten about this, actually begins with a census. The Roman emperor wants to count how many people are in the empire. And you need to know this. He's not counting how many people are in the empire because he wants to know how many people he's supposed to take care of, okay? It's not like the Roman emperor is like, how many people are there? Because I want to make sure I'm tending the flock well. This is not what he's doing here. Like, if you've not known this, the reason there's a census going on is the same reason there's always a census in every country, in every nation, including ours forever. They want to know how many people there are because they want to know how much money they can raise. That is what governments do. They tax people, take their money, and do what they want to do. This is what the Roman Empire was doing. The Roman Empire wanted to know how many people were in the Roman Empire so that they could know how much money they should be raising each year to do all of the things they wanted to do. This census wasn't cute. It wasn't enjoyable. It wasn't something anyone wanted to do, but it was something forced down, crammed on them by the government because the government wanted to make more money. Like, let me describe this for you in this way, because I, I think as I read the Christmas story this year, I just kind of read it and smile and laugh a little bit because I realized some things that I hadn't seen before. So here's the first thing. If we just kind of wireframe this story out here, let's storyboard here. Number one, um, the Roman Empire demands that its citizens do something difficult, inconvenient, and expensive, Right? Like, like the idea is we need to count you. And what happens is Mary and Joseph have to travel to another place to be counted. So it's not like they just show up at the door and knock and go, excuse me, Mr. Mary and Joseph, how many people live here? And then they get some count of how many people live here and go to the next door. They have to travel. It's difficult. It's inconvenient. They don't want to be traveling. Like if you think of traveling, you're like, get in the car. But what are they doing? They're walking. Maybe there's a horse involved, but it's not easy. This is inconvenient. And it's expensive. Like this is not a cheap thing to travel from your hometown to another place. They're traveling to this little town of Bethlehem is where they have to travel. It's inconvenient. It's difficult. It's expensive. But the government says you have to do this. So what happens? 
Mary and Joseph obey the government, even though they would rather not. Now I have added something that the Bible doesn't exactly say word for word. And so I might be wrong on this, but here's my guess. Mary and Joseph did not want to go to Bethlehem. The reason I know they did not want to go to Bethlehem is because I have a wife who has given birth two times. And I know that in the ninth month of pregnancy, when she is about to give birth, when she is about to pop, okay, when she is right there on the edge of giving birth, she doesn't want to get up to go to the kitchen, okay? She's like ordering me around and I'm like the dutiful husband who's doing it. Like a woman who is pregnant and about to give birth does not want to go on a walking journey for hundreds of miles. And so my assumption here is Mary and Joseph do not want to do this, and yet they do what they're told. Mary and Joseph don't want to do this thing that they're being told to do by the government, and yet they decide to do it anyway. They decide to go from their home in Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And Israel kind of works like this. It would be like if you were in San Francisco, that's kind of where Nazareth is. And then you would go down to like San Diego, Southern California, maybe Los Angeles area. That's where Bethlehem is. They take this little journey and they go down to Bethlehem. Here's the third piece. And this is where it's so interesting to me. Because of these events, Jesus is born in Bethlehem and a 700 year old prophecy about the Messiah is fulfilled. Isn't this interesting? Isn't it interesting that there is this prophecy that's made about Jesus 700 years before he is born? And the prophecy is that the Messiah would come and be born in Bethlehem. Someone writes this down 700. The prophet Micah writes this down 700 years before Jesus is born. 700 years pass. And this random couple gets told by God, you're going to have a baby. It's going to be the son of God. It's going to be the Messiah. And they go, great. And they're supposed to have this baby in a place called Nazareth. They're supposed to have this baby in a place like San Francisco. And yet the government says, you need to go on this long, inconvenient, expensive, difficult journey down to Bethlehem. And because they do what the government tells them to do, God positions them to fulfill a prophecy that is 700 years old. Like in every way, this is a government just making a decision because they want more money, because they're greedy, because they want more for themselves. And they submit to this and this is working out. And yet God uses this decision of history to move things in the right direction so that, so that a prophecy is fulfilled. I think this is remarkable. I think it's remarkable because I think it's true in the ancient world and I think it's true in our world today that God uses political leaders to unwittingly accomplish his purposes. I need you to know that. God uses political leaders to unwittingly accomplish his purposes. The emperor of Rome, the, the Roman emperor decides, I want to count everyone so I can get more money from them. And God is using that Roman emperor to accomplish his purposes of fulfilling a prophecy that's 700 years old. And I need you to know it was true with the Roman emperor. It's true today. There is no political leader who does anything in this world that God is not sovereignly in control of. This is true for emperors. It's true for kings and dictators. It is true for princes. It is true for presidents. It is true for governors. It is true for mayors. It is true for city council members. It is true for anyone in power. 
There is no one who does anything that God is not orchestrating and controlling and manipulating for his purposes and to his glory. Here's the Roman emperor. They're making these outrageous demands on their people and God uses that to bring the Messiah into the world and fulfill a prophecy. Can I just remind you of something this year? Um, In case you've missed it and not seen the obvious parallel here, um, this has been a year where for better or for worse, our government has demanded outrageous things from us, okay? And listen, this isn't like a statement about like, I like this government, but not that. Like local, state, federal, it has been bungled on every level, demands made of us, it has been wild. Even if you think like some of them are good, no one here is like, I think the government has nailed it on every level this year. Like none of you think that, right? There have been these demands made on us, these things. And it's not that all of these things are completely unthinkable. It's just that these demands have been made on us. And here's the temptation. The temptation is to think all of these demands have ruined my life. All of these demands have ruined the church. All of these demands have wrecked God's plan. All of these plans have taken away from what God is doing. And yet here's what I'm reminded of in this story. There is not a single plan that any political ruler has ever put in place that has ever stopped God's plan for your life or for his church, right? Like Matthew 16, Jesus makes this promise. You remember this? He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, Jesus is going to build his church and and the city council or or the governor or the president of the United States, nothing will stand against it. Everything God does will be accomplished. He will not be thwarted by anything or anyone in this world. So why am I sharing this? Like, why do I think this is relevant? Um, I think this speaks to all of us after we kind of come out of this year. We're kind of, everything has been weird and this year has kind of been off and everything feels like because of decisions the government's made, our lives have been turned upside down. Maybe you didn't get to go to college this year. You had to do it distance. Maybe you got laid off of your job. Maybe things have been kind of weird for you. I know here at church, things have been strange for us, but here's what I need us to know. And here's the reason you have hope this Christmas. It's because nothing that has happened in 2020 has disrupted God's plan for your life or for his church. I'll say that again for someone who needs to hear that. Nothing that has happened this year has disrupted what God is doing in your life or in his church. He is moving the chess pieces around and you might disagree with what's happened. You might not like the restrictions. You might not like what's going on. I've got my own opinions. I've got my own opinions on all of it. But here's what I'm confident in. None of it's thwarting the sovereign hand of God, amen? Not a single bit of it. Listen, some of you are here tonight and you think your life is on pause right now. Because it's like a lockdown. So like, how can you date anyone? Because dating apps, it's like weird. Like, how do you even do that, right? How do you even meet anyone right now? Listen, your life is not on pause. God is moving the pieces around. He has not wasted a single moment of 2020. Some of you think your career is on pause because your job isn't working out the way you thought it was. Or maybe you got laid off or not promoted like you thought you would. And you think everything's kind of ruined this year. God is moving the chess pieces around. Some of you think your education's on pause because you didn't get to go to school this year. Do you know that God is positioning you for something he wants to do in this world? There's not been a moment of 2020 that's been wasted. I need you to know that. I need you to receive that. I need you to have hope this year that this hasn't been a wasted year that we just kind of forget about. You will look back someday and see what God is doing. And listen to me. I need you to hear this. I am not this like prosperity preacher who's getting up here telling you like 2020 was bad but 2021's your year, right? It might not be. Can I be the bearer of bad news? 2021 might be worse for you. It might be, and you're like, that's the worst preacher ever. And I'm like, I get you. I'm just not gonna promise something the Bible doesn't promise. So I'm not gonna promise you that 2021's gonna be better. I'm just telling you God hasn't wasted anything this year. Not a thing in your life has been wasted. 
And God is looking on this year and you are looking at it as a waste or a detour or this pause in your life. And God's going, you don't understand. I'm positioning you for what you need to know for the future. And it's not that everything's gonna be easy, but it is that everything's going to be good because God works all things for the good of those who love him. Nothing's been wasted this year. Nothing's deterred God from his plan. It goes on this way in verse six. And it tells us this. It says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Um, so this scene I just read to you from Luke chapter two is probably one of the most depicted scenes in all of world history. When you think about art, when you think about statues, when you think about people's ideas, it is one of the most depicted scenes in world history. It's the only one I can think of that every year at the same time, we set up little statues to this exact scene. And we call these little statues nativity scenes. And we put them on our front lawn or we put them in our living room. Like right now, I have one of these in my living room right now. One of these little nativity scenes, we depict this over and over and over again. And we try to show the image of what this night was like. I was thinking of nativity scenes this week as I was thinking about the one I have in, in my living room and in my front yard. I've got two of them because I'm a pastor and you're supposed to, right? Like I've got this going on. And, and if you're like, what's a nativity? Why do we call it that? Nativity is just a fancy word for birth. Okay, this is a birth scene. And yet it's the birth of Jesus. Let, let, let me show you a picture, not a my nativity scene, but I think we have a picture of a nativity scene to put up there. And I just wanted to show this to you. I, do we have that, Diane? Or no? Yes, we do. Okay, here we go. And, and, and I was looking at this nativity scene, not because it was special, but I was looking at this nativity scene because it was pretty average and ordinary. You got Mary and you've got Joseph and you got the little baby Jesus and you've got the wise men and you've got the animals and the shepherds and everyone's kind of looking in on it. And it always occurs to me that when you have these little nativity scenes that everything looks so like peaceful and on point, right? Like you ever notice Mary's makeup is like always on point? Her hair is always doing well. Like her clothes are just flowing perfectly off of her. And Joseph's always looking noble, like he's shaved, but just enough. You know, like that type of thing. And like the animals are always quietly there. It's never like an animal, like raising its paw to like strike Jesus down. Like that never happens in the nativity scene. It's like all real nice. And you always forget like they're in the middle of a barn where like animals live and eat and like defecate. And yet that's never in the nativity scene. And, and here's what occurs to me when I think about this nativity scene. And when I think about the nativity scene that's in my living room right now, the nativity scene that might be in your living room right now or standing out front of a church right now, it always occurs to me that the first Christmas, the actual first Christmas, was not as pretty as our nativity scenes. The actual first Christmas was not as pretty as the nativity scene that I have in my living room right now. The actual first Christmas was not as pretty as the nativity scene we have in our mind and the picture, the mental idea of what that first Christmas Eve was like or that first Christmas day was like. Like I wanna describe it to you this way tonight. Can I say it this way? Like the first Christmas Eve was uncomfortable, painful, messy, confusing, humiliating, and really scary. It was uncomfortable. Uh, like I've described for you, again, like um, w w when a woman is nine months pregnant and she starts to go into giving birth, this is not like an easy scene. This is an uncomfortable moment. And it's even more uncomfortable because there's no room at the end. So they're like, see where the animals live? Go give birth in there. And she's like, all right. And she goes and does that. It's a painful moment, okay? This is like pre-epidural giving birth. This is like pre 
pain medication giving birth. Like this is one of these things where it's like she's just gonna give birth there and she's going to be in pain and then she's gonna hold her baby. And yet none of your nativity scenes ever show Mary being like, ah, like that never happens, right? It was a painful moment. It was messy. It was messy for Mary. It was messy where they were. Again, they weren't in the inn and everything's like nice hay and Jesus is asleep on the hay. We even sing that song, but like you probably know it wasn't true, right? The actual Greek word for what they laid Jesus in is actually not like a pretty little thing. It's actually a feeding trough. Like if you've ever thought about a trough that they like throw pig slop in and they're like, pigs eat out of this. They laid Jesus in that. It probably wasn't cleaned out. They probably didn't have like Clorox and wipe it down nice, okay? They didn't do that. They didn't sanitize it. They didn't spray it down. It's a messy evening. It's a messy experience. It's confusing because they're told to go over to Bethlehem and have a baby over there. And now they got to figure out how to take their baby, keep the baby alive and get the baby back to where they live. It's a confusing experience. It's a humiliating experience. Like if you are a woman who is giving birth and you're told, guess what? You can't give birth at home and you can't give birth where you wanted to. You can't even give birth in an inn. You got to give birth like in the backyard and deal with it, right? What a humiliating experience for Mary. So it's not just the physical pain, but again, if you're a woman here, you just think of some of you are dreaming of having kids someday. You imagine the humiliation of having to welcome your kid into the world and not even have a place to lay him or her down. It's humiliating. And, and then finally, it's scary. And here's the reason I know it's scary. Um, I know most of you here, maybe none of you here are, are parents. Um, but when I had my first kid, and this is not a unique thing to me. This is like every parent ever. The scariest moment in the entire universe is when you're holding the child and then they dismiss you from the hospital. They're like, you get to go now. And then you buckle your child into the car and you're like, is someone coming with me? And they're like, no, you go home now. And you're like, you're literally gonna trust me with another human? Like me? Like you're gonna trust me with this human and you go home and we have this baby there. And they're like, what do we do? Like, how do we not have the baby die? Because that's all you're thinking about when you're a first time parent. Like, how does the baby not die? It's a scary moment. I remember nights I would just like stay awake, staring at the baby being like, is she breathing? You know, like that's all I did. I would not sleep. I would just stare. It's terrifying. Let, let me read this list for you again. The first Christmas was uncomfortable, painful, messy, confusing, humiliating, and scary. You don't see that in the nativity scenes. Like, can I just say it this way? The first Christmas was a mess. It was a total mess. But here's the beautiful thing about that first Christmas. God used that night that was a total mess to bring hope and salvation into the world. That's what God did. Right in the midst of this mess, he was bringing something beautiful into the world. He was taking this mess on that first Christmas and he was bringing this masterpiece into the world. He was taking all of the confusing, painful, messy, gross things of this world and he was bringing his grace and his goodness into it through that. Not in spite of it, but right in the middle of it. You know what my second reason is for you to have peace this Christmas? My second reason that I'm gonna say it's gonna be okay for you this Christmas it's because God delights in turning your 2020 mess into a masterpiece. That's what God delights in doing. God delights in taking your mess, even the mess that's happened in this last year, and turning it into a beautiful masterpiece in your life. And listen, here's what I know. It's really easy um, to point at 2020 and all the global things that have happened and be like, yeah, the world's a mess this year. But you know what? It's actually a lot harder, and I challenge some of you to do because I don't think you've done it. It's to not look at the news and say, that's a mess. It's to look at another object and that would be your mirror and go, that's a mess too, right? 
Because I think if some of you are honest with yourselves, you would look back on this last year and go, yeah, yeah, the world was a mess, but my response to the world being a mess actually revealed that I'm a little messier, I'm a little more selfish, I'm a little more arrogant, I'm a little more self-absorbed and into myself than I thought I was. And I think if some of you look back across this last year, you would realize um, there are patterns you fell into, maybe addictions that flared back up. There were decisions you made. There were moments that were just kind of low. Like I think back to March and some of the moments where I was just kind of scared or angry or trying to control things in my life. And I just look back and I go, okay, that's a mess. And yet here's the beautiful thing is you end a year that has been no one's idea. Like no one dreamed this year would go the way it went, right? It's a mess. And yet God wants to turn your mess into a masterpiece. I don't say that because I think you're awesome. I say that because I think God's awesome. And that's what he does. He takes Christmas and he turns it into something beautiful. This terrible first night where Jesus was born and everything went wrong. And he turns it into something beautiful. And I believe he'll do the same for your life. Here's how the story ends tonight. And here's what I want to look at. Verse 8, it says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I think some of you have heard this story so many times that it's actually lost the weight and the beauty and the glory of it. Then an angel showed up to a bunch of random shepherds who had no business hearing anything about God and announced to them that there has been born for you a Messiah who is Christ the Lord. And I just want to say this real simply tonight. I believe this is cause for your peace this Christmas. Uh, Like, why do I think you should have peace this Christmas? Here's reason number three, because a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Don't make this about someone else. A savior has been born to you and to you and to you and to you. A savior has been born to your mom, to your sister, to your brother, to your uncle, to your former roommate in college, and you're kind of worried about her because of the direction she's going. A savior has been born to you and to you and to you, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Like in other words, the reason you can have hope this Christmas is because God sent Jesus in the world to save your soul. Like he saw all of your mess. He saw all of your sin. He saw all of your faithlessness. Like, do you know God sees every sin you commit? Like God saw it all before he sent Jesus. He didn't send Jesus. Then he's like, why did I send for that lady? You know, like he didn't do that. He saw everything you were ever going to do. And not just the bad things you did. God knows how bad you are at prayer. God knows how little you actually read your Bible compared to how much you say you read your Bible. God knows how much you fall short. He knows how selfish you are. He knows how arrogant and prideful you are. And he sent Jesus into this world anyway. A savior, which has been born for you who is Christ the Lord. This is the good news of the Christmas story. The good news of the Christmas story, the reason we can have peace is because God saw my mess and he wanted me anyway. So what does that mean? Number one, it means your sins are forgiven. Not kind of forgiven, not sort of forgiven, completely forgiven. Like you will never pay for your sins. The wrath of God has already been poured upon Jesus. There's none left for you. Someone needs to hear that because someone's been thinking that maybe Jesus took most of the punishment, but there's some left for you. There's none left for you. It's like God had a cup of wrath and Jesus drank it all for you. There's none left in the cup, not even a drop for you. Your sins are forgiven. Number two, your future is secure. Like, listen, again, I don't know what 2021 is going to look like. It might be the worst year of your life. 
And I know no one wants to hear me say that. No one wants to hear me say 2021. It might be the worst year of your life. In fact, you might not even make it to 2021. But the reason I can say that your future is secure is because that when we know Jesus, we know where our future ends, right? Like our future doesn't end in this life. Like if our only hope is in this life, hasn't this year proved that that's pretty futile? Like if our only hope is like, you'll have a pretty decent life, live to your mid seventies, have a decent retirement, but not that great. And then you'll die. Like that is no hope. But your hope is that though you die one day, your body will be raised. You'll live eternity in victory and resurrection with Jesus. Your future is secure. Your story ends in Jesus. Your story ends in who God is. Your sins are forgiven. Your future is secure. And here's the final thing is that your God will never leave you. He never will. There's nothing you've done today that'll make God's presence leave you. There's nothing you did last weekend or earlier this year. There's nothing you can do that would make God's presence leave you. Like the whole story of Christmas we sing about is that Jesus is our Emmanuel, which it translates to God with us. God's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's never going to abandon you. This is what it means for him to be a savior who is Christ the Lord. He forgives you. He secures your future. And he says, listen, I'm never going to leave you. Never going to leave you. I'm never going to leave you. Here's how the story ends. Verse 13 says, I know I said, here's how the story is going to end again uh, before, um, but I need you to know with preachers when they say in conclusion, you know what that means, right? Absolutely nothing. Okay. Verse 13. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest heaven. We talked about glory the other week. Glory means weight. It means that God has a weight in our lives. God has a presence, a reality that we sense that he's near, and we live as if he's actually present in every moment. Glory to God in the highest heaven, and it's this peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. And so here's the great question at the very end of this. Peace? Who gets peace? Those on whom God's favor rests. So here's the question. Who does God's favor rest on? And you know what? Almost every person since the beginning of human society has tried to answer this question. And you know what the answer almost always is? God's favor rests on the good people. God's favor rests on the privileged people. God's favor rests on the rich people. God's favor rests on the moral people, the people who haven't done the bad things. God's favor rests on you if you're a really, really good person. And the gospel of Jesus Christ has an entirely different answer to that question. Who does God's favor rest on? The answer is when you trust in Jesus, it rests on you. On you. Not because you're awesome, not because you're strong, not because you're moral, not because you've done everything right. It's that the favor of God rests on you in the moment you trust Jesus. And why does the favor of God rest on you? Again, it's not because of you. It's not because you're great. It's because the Bible says that we are in Christ. And when we are in Christ, all of the favor that God has for his beloved son is given to you. Peace to those on whom God's favor rests. And when you read that, and the next week when you hear that quoted, when someone puts that on their Instagram as their caption because they're super creative like I am, like when someone does that, I want you to read that. I want you to go, that's talking about me. That's talking about me. When it says God's favor rests on those on whom his favor rests, he's talking about me because I know Jesus and I walk with him. Tonight, I want to declare that reality the reality that the angels declared, the reality that the angels announced that first day there is a savior who has been born to us. He is Christ the Lord, peace on whom his favor rests. I want to declare that tonight. And I want to declare that not with me talking about it from the stage, but I want to declare it through a song. Um, 
And it's a song that we're going to sing right now um, as we close with a couple songs. I don't really mean as we close, like I'm done with the scripture part, but I want to talk to you about the song. Um, well, uh, about a week ago, the, the worship team came to me and said, hey, when, when we close in worship on this particular night tonight, uh, they said, we want to close with a Christmas hymn. Um, and I said, okay, that sounds great. Which one do you want to do? And, and what was so cool is they expressed to me the hymn they wanted to sing, and it's by far the most precious Christmas carol to me. Um, it's the one that when I sing it, it, it's not just like, oh, Christmas is great, but it's like Jesus is awesome. Um, every time I sing this, I'm just so deeply moved. And, and, I, and I hope you might be moved um, by the way we enjoy this tonight. And that's the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And, and I want to just walk you through what these words say, because it's just so remarkable how it says it. It says this in the song, and this song was written in the 1700s. Um, and so you'll forgive that sometimes it uses language that, that we might not have written today. It says, hark the herald angels sing. So hark just means like, pay attention to this. Hark is not like a type of angel. It's like the hark angels. No, it's like, pay attention to this. The herald angels sing. The herald, the one who announces, sings. He says, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. You, you know what's almost in there? It's like mercy, that is mild. Like, like what's mercy? Mercy is you not getting the punishment you deserve. Like you deserve wrath and condemnation and hell and God gives you mercy instead. Mercy mild. Mercy that's mild to me. Mercy that's mild to you. Mercy that's mild to all of us in our sin. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. I love when it talks about all ye nations. Every time I sing all ye nations rise, here's what I consider. There are men and women all over the globe singing about, all of the, about Jesus today. There are men and women everywhere declaring that the newborn king is here. Like if it's not occurred to you, I want you to remember that when we worship Jesus, we worship Jesus with the most diverse group of people on the history of the world. There are people in Asia and in Africa and in Europe and in South America and here. There are people on the space station. There are people in Antarctica singing about Jesus, the newborn king. Everywhere, different cultures, different skin colors, different people, different rich, poor, powerful, not powerful, all over the place singing about Jesus. All ye nations rise because Jesus isn't for some sub set of people. He's for everyone. With angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. He wasn't supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but because of God's mighty hand, he got moved there, even though people didn't know that was happening. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Christ, my highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Sometimes when people sing this part of the song, they, they try to change it. And they say, offspring of the, the mother's womb. And they sing the mother's womb because they're embarrassed. Because <laughs> in Christmas, we teach that a virgin had a baby. And here's what people criticize. They go, virgin had a baby. Stupid ancient people. Virgins don't have babies. And here's what I want you to know. Like you can get so caught in this chronological snobbery where you think we in 2020 have figured everything out, but those ancient dumb people, they didn't know anything. Listen, there's a lot of things they didn't know, but here's what they knew. They knew where babies came from, okay? This is not the first generation to discover where babies come from. They knew women did not just randomly go, oh, oh, okay, like this didn't happen. It's not like they thought this happened. Here's what they knew back when Jesus was born. And here's what we know now. We don't declare that a virgin had a baby because we think that just sometimes accidentally happens. We're declaring that's true because we're declaring it's the God of miracles who does that. Sometimes people go, well, it's impossible for a virgin to conceive. And I go, you're exactly right. But we serve and believe in the God of the impossible. So when I sing about the virgin birth, when I sing about the virgin's womb, I sing about a God who can do impossible things in the midst of barren situations. 
veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity. Hail the deity, the God of the universe who's here in human flesh. God in human flesh. And you need to understand this, that Jesus, when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, is still in human flesh. So when we say hail incarnate deity, in heaven right now, there is an in flesh Jesus who is right here on this earth. Hail incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Hail the heaven born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. He steps out of heaven for us. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give a second birth. I mentioned this song was written in the 1700s. And so it refers to all human beings as man. Or as men. It talks about raising the sons of earth. And for some people, you're like, well, if I wrote that song, I wouldn't say man. I wouldn't say sons. And I say, knock yourself out. Write your song. But this is their song. And so here's what we need to understand. When they're writing this, they're not trying to like slight women. That's actually not what's occurring here. We need to get it out of our minds that every song that's not written exactly as we would write it in December of 2020 means that it's something wrong with it. Like, listen, when it says, born that man no more may die, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't get so caught up in a word. Like, if that's not your preference and you'd rather sing it a different way, like, knock yourself out. But all I'm trying to say here is that it's saying that born that human beings don't have to die anymore. Like, we'll die, but we'll be raised from the dead. Born to raise the sons of earth and give us second birth. This is the whole story of the gospel in four sentences. That's what this is. Mild he lays his glory by, born that men no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And then it closes with these words, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. This Christmas, let's give glory to the newborn king. This Christmas, let's have peace because God came for us and nothing in your life is wasted and nothing in your life is outside of God's sovereign hand and his sovereign control because he sent his son Jesus into the world to die, to raise from the dead that you might have the newness of life. This Christmas story is ultimately the gospel story and the gospel story is the story of how God came to get you. Let's sing about that this Christmas. Would you stand with me right now? And we're gonna sing this Christmas hymn. Well, we're gonna sing Hark the herald angels sing. Listen to what the angels say. Remember what the angels said that first Christmas morning. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king.